Hey, serious privacy enthusiasts, ready to ace your AI data privacy game? Oh, you bet, Kate. Dive into the world of TrustSark's Nimity Research, your go-to for staying on top of regulatory developments in AI and privacy. Seriously, Nimity Research maintains a massive privacy and regulatory database featuring expert guidance and analysis from legal and privacy pros. So save time on privacy research, cut your compliance timeline, and reduce costs with Nimity Research. Get your regulatory research and insight at your fingertips with a free trial. So get ahead in privacy compliance and start that free trial today. Go to trustark.com slash nimity dash free dash trial. This is Serious Privacy by Trustark. Here are your hosts, Paul Breitbart and Kay Royal. Good evening, Europe. This is Slovenia calling with our votes after a spectacular show. Oh, wait, hang on. Even though this is the week of the Eurovision Song Contest, this is just another episode of Serious Privacy. And although I am calling in from Slovenia, Kay is in her home office in Arizona waiting to discuss the main privacy topics of the past couple of weeks. In this episode, we'll talk about the Connecticut Padum, leaky web forms, and of course about Roe v. Wade and the broader privacy discussion that comes with it. My name is Paul Breitbart. And I'm Kay Royal, and welcome to Serious Privacy. So Paul, you caught me off guard. I didn't look at my unexpected questions. Ooh. Here's one. Where are you today? <laughs> well, actually, I do want to know where you are today, but that's not really an unexpected question because I'm sitting in my office in Tempe, Arizona. What shocking news have you recently learned? And doesn't have to be shocking bad. Let's try to avoid bad. Hmm. That buying a new house is expensive? <laughs> You've heard the stories, but now you understand it? Yeah, basically, that's the conclusion. That every every wall you want to move, every plug you want to add, every thing, every appliance that you want in the kitchen is adding up very, very fast. Yes, but it's cheaper now than it would be later. Yeah, that's also true. And hopefully I'm only doing this once in my life. Right. So, Not every four <laughs> years like I do? No. And I mean, buying a new built house is in any case something I don't plan to do do more frequently. But yeah, it's Side it's exciting place, yeah. because I can make, make every choice that I want to. But it's also a lot of choices that you need to make. And I'm very happy that the deadline for the choices is the 25th <laughs> of May. So it's getting closer. <laughs> Because in my head, I've walked around my new house for miles and miles and miles, looking at all the walls, where I want the artwork, where Uh, I want power plugs, where I want a desk, where, well, you get the picture. I guess the biggest shocking news to me, I guess shocking news to y'all was me leaving TrustArk after Paul left TrustArk, but our hearts and souls still belong to TrustArk. We're still number one TrustArk fans. Yeah, but that wasn't news to you. That was your choice. So that doesn't count. Yeah, exactly. It, uh, and so it, th- the shocking part, other than Trust Arc, was my daughter moving my grandkids across the country. And my heart is still breaking. But I do have slightly good news in that she might, just might, be looking at moving to Charlotte, North Carolina. But on to other things. So we were just talking about how I'm working on the the So Many States white paper. And I just realized 
that the triggers for whether or not you are subject to state law, there are only two states that have a revenue amount trigger, and that's California and Utah, both of them being $25 million. But the others, there's no revenue trigger. The the triggers are doing business in the state or producing products or services. The other states are you doing you do business in the state or you're producing services or products targeting residents of the state, and then typically plus either controlling or processing the personal information of a hundred thousand consumers is generally a hundred thousand consumers plus or controls and processes 25,000 consumers with 50% of your revenue from the sale of PI. So no other states have it. I will say Connecticut, though, actually has controls or processes the personal information of 100,000 consumers, excluding what's necessary to complete a payment transaction. Hmm. I haven't seen that in any other state, but that's Connecticut. No. So they're in the financial mecca area of the United States. But still, I don't understand these triggers. They don't make sense to me. For me, you have like... That's because you're European. Yeah, I know. But I mean, (laughs) if if you have legislation about something so fundamental as privacy and data protection, and you finally move to have an omnibus data protection law, and then you only apply it to a handful of people and a handful of companies. If you don't have the right nationality, if you don't have the right citizenship... Oh, I'm sorry, the law doesn't apply to you. If you're an employee or if it's a B2B relationship, so you're an employee of a company you're doing business with, that's pretty much a standard exception. California, I had always had it in my brain that the CPRA permanently memorialized the moratorium against employee and B2B data. Apparently, I'm wrong. It made the moratorium in California permanent until the CPRA took effect in January 1st of 2023. California has bills right now, one of them for yet another moratorium, the other to make it permanent. Actually, the bill is to make the moratorium permanent. So my 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 past words were actually predictive words. I was looking to the future, <laughs> accidentally cool. You are now digging so, yourself we'll out of a hole you dug yourself into? Apparently so. I didn't even know I was in a hole, so I was just <laughs> floundering around blindly. But I don't know why I had it in my brain that the CPRA made it permanent, but that's okay. We're correcting it before it hurts anybody. Nobody listened to me anyway, so, you know. Well, but uh, I mean, a couple of hundred people every week on this podcast, so, I mean. Yeah. Well, if everybody tells one friend and one more person listens, then, hey, look at us. Exactly. I still think we have the best content. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're yeah, I, I I'm I'm just there. So okay. So talk to me about Connecticut. We now yes, have the, let's talk about Connecticut. The CTDPA. You know, I saw one place calling it the CTDPA, but that's not actually the title. The title is the Act for Personal Data Privacy and Online Monitoring. The APDPOM. Yeah, hold on. <laughs> yeah, I've got it up here somewhere. Yeah, it, it's weird. I'm calling it Bill 6, the Connecticut Senate Bill 6, because, you know, we've seen that happen with Ontario with Bill 64. So, but yes, it is the that that thing with the online monitoring. So I don't know what they're actually going to wind up calling it in the end, 
but it is the, let me scroll up here to the top, an act concerning, per, yeah, I was right, personal data privacy and online monitoring. So P-D-P-O-M. So is it just going to be the Pom-Pom Act? I can go with that. <laughs> we'll just call it the, the Connecticut Palm. Yeah, I don't know. I give up. The P-D-Pom. Padum. Oh, there we go. I like that. The Make that sound Padum. one more time. Padum. <laughs> The Connecticut's Padum. There we go. So we got the thingy and the Padum. <laughs> it doesn't make our lives easier, I guess. But <laughs> so what is but it what does is the... pro- it does provide oodles and oodles of entertainment. That's true. So what is the Connecticut Padum all about? The Padum. Well, the I don't know if it's good or bad, but it actually takes effect July first of twenty twenty three. So it doesn't give you a whole lot of running room like some of the others do because hey, it's more than a year it's more than 73 days exactly so china's going to be our gauge there for all of it but it is interesting how does it line up with the others so you are subject to it if you do business in the state or you produce products or services targeting residents that seems to be a standard language now plus controls or processes the personal information of a hundred thousand consumers excluding what's necessary to process a payment, or it controls processes the personal information of 25,000 consumers with 25% of their gross revenue from the sale of PI. The sale is like California's sale. It's money or something of value in exchange. So it is the expensive definition. It does have requirements for a privacy notice. So this is one of the things I was telling Paul when we first connected. And he's like, hey, shouldn't we start recording? Just talk about this. So if y'all are familiar with the so many states, so many laws, white paper that TrustArc does, there's tables in there that compare the states to each other. So I'm actually taking time on my free time away from my full-time job. I'm actually taking time to break out privacy notices. So I'll give you a separate table of privacy notices and what's required for each one. And maybe they all have the same thing, but maybe it helps you to see that in writing. I'm also going to, I've already broken out the table of sensitive data, and then I'll break you out a separate table for consumer rights. So pretty much the rights are lining up. The times are lining up for 45 days plus 45 days of an extension. Most of them are adding in an appeals process now, but I'll lay this all out for you in separate tables so you have it. So I think you're going to really like what this paper has for you. And yes, the goal is to have it done this week. So that way it will be so available. That's for the five the five omnibus laws that are enforced right now. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I'm still including the CCPA with the CPRA comparisons because the CPRA has not taken effect yet. So still have that in there. So sensitive data for Connecticut is racial or ethnic origin, religious beliefs, mental or physical health sexual orientation or sex life, citizenship or immigration status, and genetic or biometric data used to identify a person. Again, I love this one. Personal data from a known child will now be sensitive data in Connecticut and -hmm. precise geolocation. Now, of course, Connecticut has a slew of exceptions and everything, but they do exempt nonprofit organizations, which, as y'all may remember, Colorado does not. And technically, California doesn't either. So we now have California, Utah, Colorado, Virginia, and... Connecticut. Right? Yep. 
Yep, we have five. We still have some pending. There are still some states remaining whose legislative season hasn't closed yet. I'm trying to recall what those are. I believe we were about we have a blog post. We I believe Trust Arc has a blog post coming out uh this week with a diagram of what states are still pending, still in their legislative season. Because even those states who have a two-year season, this is the second of the two years. So if the privacy bills die now, that's it. They're dead. They'll have to be refiled for next year. I will say that I know California, or not California, I will say that Arizona has died for the privacy bill. And Washington has. Yeah, it's interesting because we had Representative Domingo on the podcast talking about Arizona. I actually finally went and looked at the bill. It could stand some improvement Well, to better align with other states. I think you still have a few hours in the week left where you are not working. So, Yeah, yeah. I'll just wait till the summertime when everything slows down. So we have that. So it's interesting. Now, keep in mind, in the United States, California under the CPRA still has the most expensive definition of sensitive data. They actually still include union membership and philosophical beliefs, and they include government-issued ID numbers, account access credentials, and then, of course, content of messages unless a business is the recipient, which you can imagine where that comes from is the breaches in California of email leaks and people reading content of Mm -hmm. emails. Sony breach being one Is it it. the business being the recipient or also the employee of a business being the recipient? I'd have to go back and look at the exact language, but I would assume if it's sent to an employee of the business on business matters, that would still qualify as a business being the recipient. Hmm. Now, if it's sent to an employee of the business, but is a personal matter, probably not. But now you make me want to go pull up the California exact language, which by the way, I have all of them open because I'm making sure my charts and everything are right as we go. But I'll have to look at that exact language. And why would you make life easy and and create as little carve-outs as possible if you can have a lot of carve-outs? If you can have a lot of carve-outs, why not have a lot of carve-outs? So let's see what else we've got about Connecticut. So, oh, and you do have opt-in consent for sensitive data. You have to have explicit consent for processing the sensitive data. Another thing that Connecticut does, and I'm also looking at the exact language, rather than defining child as someone under 13 years, it defines child as defined in COPPA. So rather than specifically saying under 13, and that way, if they raise the ages of COPPA, it's automatically raised in Connecticut. But they do actually have provisions similar to California for those teenagers ages 13 through 15. And so do pay attention to that one. We discussed that, the selling and the sharing of data. Opt-outs are just like some of the ones we're starting to see, opting out of selling, opting out of targeted behavioral advertising, um, or targeted advertising, I guess they're shortening it to, opting out of profiling. Now, they specifically specify profiling by automated means that produces a significant legal effect, which makes me think maybe I need to go back and look at some of the other states' profiling definition and see if it's also by automated means. I have a feeling it is, but just want to check on that. Of course, there's vendor contract requirements. I'm actually thinking of doing a breakout table on that one too. And they use the controller processor language like GDPR. 
No security audits are required. They do specifically require data protection impact assessments. And those can be requested by the attorney general if he believes that it is material to the investigation. And accountability requirements like a register? No. Although probably the information that you would need to provide to individuals is so detailed that without a, a register, it's almost impossible to do. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. And that that's default in all of them, pretty much. But they do require that in your data protection impasse assessments, you have to document the data that you collect and the elements and show where the risk is and everything. And I do not believe it is limited to high-risk processing, but it might be. I'll make sure I look under that. One of the interesting things is they do provide a cure period. Now, they're similar to, I believe it's Colorado, in that the cure period is 60 days. And Colorado is an optional 60 days until January 1st of 2025. Under Connecticut, it is 60 days mandatory, similar to what we saw in Utah with their 30 days mandatory. But it's only available for the first 18 months. After that, the cure period remains, but it is discretionary. In Colorado, the cure period disappears. It's gone. It's Mm. not even optional anymore. So it is mandatory under Connecticut, like Utah is. Utah is 30 days. Connecticut is 60. But Connecticut only gives you 18 months of that cure period being mandatory. After that, it becomes a discretionary 60 days, which they take into account all different aspects of, you know, what the violation is, the size of the company, the technological capabilities, the type of data, the things like that. So that's really good. Now, the interesting thing is, and I need to chase this down, the penalties are not specifically listed. I don't believe. I believe the penalties come under the unfair trade practices laws. And so there's a lot of different penalties under that in any violation of the law is considered an unfair trade practice, period. Any of it. So that would be similar to the approach that the FTC actually takes for privacy violations, that it would be an unfair and deceptive practice under Article 5. Exactly. And there can be injunctions, there can be restitution, there can be civil penalties. So I can't give you a a list of what exactly the penalties are. Just know that this is pretty strong, that a violation of this act is considered an unfair trade practice on its face. Well, but it could be a good precedent also moving towards federal legislation to indeed empower the Federal Trade Commission as the enforcement body for any federal law that might be created and really make also not just a competitions authority, but also a data protection authority out of the Federal yeah. Trade Commission, which they de facto are already, but then also by, by statute. Yeah. And I don't know if the penalties of the civil money penalties under the unfair trade practices are per violation, per person in the violation, per record in the violation. I, I don't know. I would have to do more digging for that. But just know you need, if you've never looked at Connecticut's unfair trade practices laws, might be time to learn what that has in it. At least if you have business there that meets the requirements of, what was it, 25,000 users? Yeah. Either control or process the PI of 100,000 consumers, except for that to for a payment transaction, or 25,000 consumers plus 25% of revenue from selling it. So 100,000 consumers is your baseline, but there is no revenue requirement. And they do say controllers or processors who do business in the state or produce products or services targeting residents. 
of course, you're, here, here's the thing. Your processor producing products or services that targets residents, do they mean the end user of your controllers or do they mean that you're a B2B and you're targeting a business? So some of that will probably have to be- Advertising companies, maybe? Yeah, will have to be sussed out as to what it is. But this takes effect in July. So if y'all are keeping July track- July of next year. So we have more than a year to get ready for it and await further guidance, which I assume will be coming from the AG's office. Yeah, I would assume so. CPRA goes into effect January 1st. Virginia goes into effect January 1st. Colorado and Connecticut go into effect July 1st, and Utah follows right behind with December 31st. So 2023 is going to be the year of the power user. And there can be a few more to be added to that list. There are still some whose laws are alive and whose legislative sessions are not over yet. There is a special session being called in one of the states, and I don't think it's publicly published as to what bills they're going to consider in their special session, but this could be one of the ones on the table. So I think there were four states remaining. I'd have to go back and look. I think the blog that Trust Arc is coming out with has that. That's not me researching that. That's the fantastic Nimity team that Trust Arc bought. They're the ones that come out with all of this. And so we'll do it. And if you don't have Nimity research as a privacy person, that's the one thing you need to make sure that you buy whenever. Yeah, I miss it dearly. Yeah. No matter what company I went to, that was the only thing I asked for was the Nimity researchability. It truly is out of this world. And the maps and the charts, they give you the ability to customize what you have. And no, I'm not doing commercials for Trust Arc, although we could. Yes, 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 you are, but it's okay for a for once. Yeah, I'm not doing it just because to do a commercial. I'm doing it because, frankly, if Nimity sucked, I would say that. But it doesn't. But it doesn't. It is, it's the best research <laughs> in the world for privacy. So that's why I do it is because if I was talking to you on your back porch, drinking a cup of tea, I would, and you asked me, what's the best privacy research? I would say Nimity. Oh, I'm in the process. I'm in the midst of an RFP, so... I won't, I won't comment. Woot woot. Yeah, let's not comment on that. Okay, so if y'all, by the way, listeners, if y'all have any questions over Connecticut, please don't hesitate to drop us a note. It's really easy on LinkedIn with Serious Privacy. You can just go to the Serious Privacy page, drop a note. It notifies both Paul and I. We'll answer your question. Uh, you can find both of us on Twitter. Don't expect me to pay attention on Quitter, Twitter, 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 whatever. I actually go on there every now and then, and I try to track down what comments and replies people are saying. I'm a little hectic and scattered when it comes to Twitter. It's not my thing. But track me down on LinkedIn, and I'll pay attention. Sounds good. But Kate, to be honest, Connecticut is nice, but it's not the biggest privacy debate that's ongoing in the U.S. right now, is it? It's not. Really? Shocking. You want to talk about (laughs) Roe v. Wade? No. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's it was a leaked draft. What I'm really interested in is finding out who leaked it and what kind of punishment oh. are they going to be under because And why they it, leaked it. You know, you you know why they leaked it cuz they they knew this would outrage people and they were hoping that the public outrage on it might actually sway the court's decision cuz the decision's not going to be issued my understanding until late summer. But you really don't want draft decisions of your Supreme Court being leaked. 
No, that's not a good precedent. That that's not something. I we think want. that's 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 a unicum. I don't think that has ever happened before in any Supreme Court around the world. Yeah, not that I know of. So it is, of course, everyone's going up in arms on the abortion rights, and I'm not going to enter that debate. But everyone's up in arms on the abortion right, but it's not the abortion rights, although that's critically important. That's not the part that hurts. The part that hurts is it really is going to start the dismantling of privacy rights right as we're on the cusp of the U.S. understanding privacy rights. And they're saying, well, this is because we're going to put it back in the hands of the state. I don't believe a lot. I'm with a lot of people. I don't believe that's the right thing to do. I believe a fundamental right like this needs to be on a federal level. You and I talk about it when we talk about the states with the privacy rights. What we would really prefer is a strong federal law because these are the things that shouldn't be left to the states. These are the things that should be guaranteed fundamental rights on a federal level. And if you push it to the states, you're going to come out with scattered rights. You may have a right to one thing if you live in California, but oops, I live in New Mexico. I don't have any rights. So mm-hmm. it shouldn't be that way. You should These types, these critical rights should be guaranteed on a federal level. And maybe this is one of the things that will move the federal government to actually passing a privacy law. But typically, privacy laws don't address someone's decision to make ability to make decisions about their body and what happens to their body. You don't usually see that in a privacy law, although it seems like those one of the things you shouldn't have to be told is privacy rights to your own body. I think I saw one person's analysis about how even to donate organs, you seem to have more privacy rights over what happens to your body, mm-hmm. whether or not you're going to donate organs than when you're alive. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a tough discussion. I mean, abortion, the right to abortion for me is a no-brainer. But again, that's also because I'm raised in a liberal European country where this has been allowed for a long time. And even though we do have the debate, and of course the debate is also impacted by the whole debate that is now taking place in the U.S., yeah, we actually have it's a had very a, personal thing. It is a very personal thing. And we've actually had a few debates in Parliament recently, because until until the start of this year, one of the provisions in our abortion legislation here is a five day waiting period. So uh, a woman would go to a doctor or to a clinic and say, I want an abortion. And then you were sent back to think it over for five days. Like you wouldn't have thought about it when you would come to the clinic. So that is scrapped from our legislation now, and there is still a debate ongoing whether it should also be possible in the early stages to get the abortion pill instead of having the full procedure done, and and that is still a debate. So the abortion debate also takes place this side of the Atlantic, but not as as we see it in the U.S. now. Of course, it's very much one of those divisive topics. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm re-watching The West Wing for the gazillionth time. <laughs> I actually just saw the episode, The Supremes, which is one of my favorites, where Glenn Close is Evelyn Baker Lang, who is then nominated as the uh, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He appoints a conservative and a liberal. Exactly. 
Love that one. That is a really good episode, but it's also somewhere in the episode, somebody says it is like the whole Supreme Court has become a single issue court. It is all about yeah. Roe v. Wade, yes or no. Also in the whole nomination process, when we saw that also with the, the nomination of, of three justices by, by former President Trump, he said, I'm only putting people on the court who are against abortion because that is the, the main decisive factor. And that to me feels so wrong that you make indeed a court into a single issue body, even though they yeah. certainly discuss all these other topics. This seems to be the one mantra. And yes, this is a right to privacy issue and not a right to data protection issue. But yeah, we've said before, we are first and foremost also fundamental rights lawyers. And this really impinges on a lot of fundamental rights, not just the the, the, the right to privacy, also the right of, of bodily integrity, where we've had also the discussion with the vaccine mandates and the mouth masks and, and, and right. whatever. But it's Yeah, you shouldn't be able to force someone to take a vaccine, but oh, wait, we do. Yeah, and I also struggled with that one. And I do see... And we're talking chicken pox and measles, mumps, and rubella and some of these polio vaccines and some of these other vaccines that we've required for years and years and years. And all of a sudden now it's a sensitive issue with COVID. Yeah. Which which boggles the mind, I guess, maybe when they first mandated the polio vaccine or they mandated some of the others. Again, you could be exempted from it for religious beliefs or medical reasons, I believe, for all vaccines. I guess if, if the vaccine was going to kill you, medical reason, you probably shouldn't take it. But I don't recall, maybe I'm not old enough, that the nation went into rebellion over forced vaccines for the others. And so at least not on this scale. I'm looking at a lot of things that are happening and we are living in some pretty transformative times right now when it comes to privacy, when it comes to critical court decisions, when it comes to war and how the other uh, countries are supporting or not supporting specific things. Globally, decisions that we're coming to Maybe every generation can say this, that there was so much that changed in their generation when you look mm -hmm. at technology and travel and computing that they lived in transformative times as well. But I'm just going to stick to my notion that this is this is hist history in the making. True. And luckily, there are still some people who can, even with a, a severe issue like this, they, that they can make you laugh. I saw this cartoon from a, a guy called Singer that really makes the the argument <laughs> a bit ridiculous. I'm showing it to Kay now. I'll put a link in the show note, but basically yes. it says life begins at erection. And I really had to laugh very hard. I've heard the other argument. Yeah, and I mean it's it's I thought it was funny how serious this issue is. But yeah, that it is a big right to privacy issue and Let's see if the one who leaked the draft was successful into right. maybe toning it down slightly. Yeah, it might make them dig their heels in stronger. That's the other option. You know, sometimes people do that. Yeah. And I think that's so. uh, that's fair. Yeah. So that that's kind of a downer conversation, but it is something that's very top of mind for people here in the U.S., that are aware of these things. There's a lot of people that are aware of the potential decision, but they're not aware of the issues that are on hand. 
in in the decision. They're they're going by what you and I have talked about a lot of what's being talked about in social media. So we have a lot of these conversations, and this is where a lot of attorneys are actually trying to stay out of these knee jerk conversations on social media. People that they hear something someone's talking about without actually understanding the points. But I mean, that's that's social media all over the place, right? And who knows what bots out there are creating controversy either. Oh, yeah, a lot. I know we are close to time, but there is one more topic that I really want to raise today. Okay. That is a study that came out in Europe today, so May 11th, and that got quite a bit of publicity from our national broadcaster here in the Netherlands. This is a study conducted by the Radboud University in Nijmegen here in the Netherlands by the uh, Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium and the University of Lausanne in Switzerland. And it is about leaky forms. That's also the title. Leaky forms, a study of email and password exfiltration before form submission. Basically, advertisers are already collecting the email you are filling out on a web form before you hit send. Ah, you know, I've heard that from a lot of things is that the forms capture the data, even if you decide not to submit it, that from the moment you start entering it, they capture that. And that's also been a criticism of TikTok, that they are capturing draft video submissions without the videos even being submitted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, So yes. The researchers here looked at thousands of websites, and indeed, they had web forms before people hit send. Their email addresses were already shared with tracking networks. So for personalized advertising, in some instances, also passwords were were submitted. And these are big websites that get millions of visitors on a daily basis. USA Today, Trello, Shopify, Marriott, Prezi, um, yeah. Arizona Central, you. Let's see, we already looked at Healthline, Fox News, The Verge, WebMD. The London Independent, GitLab, and, and many more. The researchers found 1,850 websites sharing data of European users to those tracking companies, and about 2,950 doing that for Americans. So it's likely that some of the difference here is because of, of European data protection law, but still 1,850 European companies are in, in contravention of the law. And that is just from the random check that, that these researchers have done. In some cases, data will be pseudonymized, which is, of course, a security measure, but doesn't prevent the applicability of data protection law. And the lead researcher, Asuman Sanol, also said that they suspect that other data, like date of birth and also the name, are being shared but they haven't been able to look into that right now. So well, also Marriott is included here. And Marriott yeah. was already so familiar with uh, massive data breaches. So maybe... Yes. But I will say that when, where they list the top 10 websites where email addresses are leaked to tracker domains. So they they have these asterisks to a bunch of them that indicate that this is not reproducible as of February 2022. So maybe those websites corrected what they had going on wrong. I don't know. So that's that's actually a good part in theirs. But when they talk about the screen captures, they talk about password leaks, email leaks in Europe and the U.S., hashed personal information leaks due to Meta, 
due to automatic advanced matching and the same thing for TikTok. But even though it's hashed, they have automatic advanced matching that can match you even though it's hashed. So those are leaks there too. And so, yeah, this is something to dig in more. It is. And and what I'm especially concerned about is that there are also quite a lot of websites that would process indirectly, at least, sensitive personal information. Websites like WebMD.com, where you would look up information about about your health and, and possible disease. And I think that is especially serious. Also, healthline.com. And if you, if you use those kind of websites to find information and you maybe reconsider submitting a form or registering an account, but your, your data would still be shared with them. Um, yeah, because they don't wait for the submit. There was one in here that it talks about uh, Meta and TikTok and gives you links to the documentation that says that unlike what is actually claimed, Both of them collect hashed personal data when the user clicks links or buttons that in no way resemble a submit button. In fact, their scripts don't even try to recognize submit buttons or listening if it's an audible form. They designate what page elements will trigger data collection. It means they collect hashed personal information even when you abandon a form or you click a button or a link to navigate away from the page, they're taking that as submit. Even though a lot of forms, like I said, you can start entering information like your email and be like, "Uh, I don't really think I want to do this. And you close that screen, that email is still submitted. Yeah. So it's a a serious concern that so much data is already shared without people uh, being aware of it. and Now, will European data protection authorities take action on this? I may hope so. I mean, the study came out, or at least got media attention today. So I think the researchers will be talking a lot about this in the coming days and weeks. I know that Ooh, some can of we them, get them on the show? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to try. And some of them will, in, for sure, be attending CPDP. But okay. yeah, I will reach out to... To, to, to some of them to see if we can can get them on the show. Yeah, I think that would be utterly fascinating. And I think our listeners would enjoy hearing more about that. You might work for some of these companies that are doing some of these practices and have absolutely no idea that they're doing it. Exactly. This is not something I would think to ask. No, this is also not something that I would think to ask. I did a quick check. There are luckily not a lot of Dutch companies there. <laughs> Okay, I'm not even going to check U.S. companies because. Well, I mean, the majority is U.S. companies that we yeah. <laughs> that we already know yeah. from the study. Yeah. But no, this is this is indeed an issue of concern, and I think it would be uh, it would be good for organizations to to be aware yeah. and to make sure, even if it may be a programming error, that they update their uh, the way that their web forms work and. Hopefully, we'll see the end of these kind of practices soon, also from a transparency perspective. Yeah, because we're not even talking about Google Analytics. So we'll, sh- we'll share the information in, in the show. And indeed, we'll try to, uh, to get the, uh, the authors of the paper on the, on the program. Yeah. In any case, speaking about academic papers, because with CPDP, the delayed 2022 version coming up at the end of May, we will also see another European Data Protection Law Review Young Scholar of the yes. Year Award. 
So probably after the summer, we can do another round with the three finalists of the award and discuss a few more academic papers. Absolutely. And congrats to everyone that's keeping up your academic studies. I I think a lot of academic studies increased over COVID because people were stuck at home. And so just keep that up. If you were going for a degree or a certification, finish, finish what you did. Make sure it's there as one of our friends, Alexander Hanf, always, not always, but has been bragging about is how much he loves the LLM course, I believe he's in, Mm -hmm. and how well he's been doing. At Maastricht University. Yes, where you are one of his professors. Well, I'm very much looking forward to teach Alexander some things in in year two of his program, yeah. Okay, now (laughs) do y'all use the Socratic method like we do here? You just constantly just hammer them with questions without giving information? Well, that's one of the options. <laughs> I think in the case of Alexander, it's more making sure that, doing he Socratic. He, that he isn't the one asking all the questions. But <laughs> and giving all the answers. Very, very well educated. Um, very, a, a gentleman who knows a lot about privacy. We've had him on a couple of times. Yeah, but he is there to learn. So he should also listen. So that will be a nice, a nice challenge. But no, it's actually, <laughs> it is actually a lot of fun to, to, to be able to teach. Yes, keeping up my academic writing is a bit more of a challenge, but the summer is coming. So hopefully that okay. will give some time. Fingers crossed. On that note, we'll wrap up another episode of Serious Privacy. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app or favorite podcast application. If you want to reach out to us, find us on LinkedIn as Serious Privacy, on Twitter as at Podcast Privacy, you find Kay on Twitter as Heart of Privacy and myself as Europol B. You can reach out to us via email, via seriousprivacy at trustark.com or podcast at seriousprivacy.eu. And until next week, goodbye. Bye, y'all. That was Serious Privacy. Hey listeners, looking to navigate the realm of responsible AI data privacy governance? Well, look no further. Absolutely. TrustArc is paving the way, offering a complete approach to managing privacy risks in the world of AI. TrustArc allows organizations to confidently use AI with personal or sensitive data, moving forward efficiently and cost-effectively. And here's the kicker. Protect your company and data with TrustArc's privacy-driven compliance software. Because they're... Deep automation streamlines data privacy governance, cutting your time to compliance with automated data mapping, risk assessments, and regulatory reporting. TrustArc's enhancements go way beyond that, helping organizations understand AI better and align cross-functionally on data governance, privacy, and security. Plus, they provide guidance on privacy governance for AI and how to mitigate risks using frameworks like NIST AI, OECD AI, and the Nemesis Privacy Management Accountability Framework. If you're aiming for compliance excellence, check out Privacy Central, seriously one of my best parts. It uses automation and privacy expertise to understand your requirements, build and manage your privacy program with ease. Oh, I agree. Privacy Central is your go-to to measure your progress toward responsible AI data compliance. Stay ahead with TrustArc's Privacy Central. Visit TrustArc.com now. Ask me a Paul if you have any questions.